0: Oh, Lasso. Let's go directly into meditation. Please find the most comfortable position you can find. with the motivation of bodhicitta, of loving-kindness towards yourself and all beings around you, let your first act of loving-kindness in this session be to let your awareness relax and descend into the body, right down to the earth element, releasing all thoughts and imagery, all exertion. Like dropping a stone into a still pool of water, let your awareness just come to rest in the ground, where your body is in touch with the earth. not thinking about your body and you're not visualizing your body. The very notion of Earth itself evaporates. And there's simply space and fluctuations in the space. Space filled with energy, what else shall we call it? Let the light of your awareness permeate the space, the somatic space, space of tactile sensations, mindfully present, clear throughout the entire field, from the top to the bottom. Belt, let there be just the felt, without visualizing the body, without labeling it, without reifying it. No body, just space. And sensations arising and passing within space, but with no clear boundaries. No inside, no outside. No mind and no not mine. Utterly relax into that space, any contraction, tightness around your shoulders. Any tightness in the face, especially around the eyes, melt away. here but if we project names we might just say space and fields of energy fluctuating arising and passing pulsing and pulsing but we don't really need the names just be quiet and be aware and set your body at ease in stillness and even if you're in the supine position, let your mind be one of vigilance, clarity, attentiveness. Nothing to do, just a downtime to set yourself at ease, to deeply relax while fully awake. A good combination. And as if you were having an out-of-body experience, let your body breathe, but with no sense of ownership over the body or the breath. Just a body breathing, and then throw out the notion of a body breathing. And simply let the breathing flow without names, without ownership, without control. Utterly surrender. And let the breathing take place effortlessly, in, effortlessly, out. And the outbreath is such a natural time to release, to let go, to let go totally, as if you're willing for this to be the last breath, and you give it all away, holding nothing in reserve, but neither expelling the breath, just letting it flow out, quietly, attentively. until the next breath flows in like an unrequested gift it just comes in freely flowing in and accepted without reservation without pulling it without inhibiting it just letting it flow in and like a gift whatever it is you accept it a little gift a bit gift fast or slow equally effortlessly out and in, as if you were deep asleep. And then from your very core, set your mind at ease. Eudaimonically, everything will be fine. Hedonically, it's always up and down. So don't worry. Set your mind at ease as you release all attachment to this life, and release all attachment to mundane concerns. Only there can you really find rest, a sense of ease that is untroubled by anxiety, by hopes and fears. Only this way can you allow yourself the freedom to come to rest without grasping in the present moment, without following after the past or anticipating the future. Truly setting your mind at ease. best of your ability, out of this sense of ease, sense of surrender, but happy surrender, fearless surrender. To the best of your ability, release all grasping. Grasping to objects, grasping to the mind itself. And in that release, what remains, of course, is stillness. like an unflickering candle flame, awareness is naturally bright and clear. Rest there, your mind settled in its natural state, unstructured, without direction, loose and relaxed. And simply be aware of the sensations throughout this field that clearly indicate to you the breath is coming in, the breath is going out. But you don't need to think the breath, or or in and out. Just be aware of those fluctuations in the field. So you're aware of the duration of the inhalation, the duration of the exhalation without labeling it, without thinking about it, without imagining or labeling the body or the breath. You know all of this before you think it. So rest in that non-discursive, non-verbal, immediate knowing. But you know simply, without articulating it, when the in-breath is long, it is long. When its out-breath is long, it is long. And as your whole system calms down, it needs less oxygen. And over time, the breath becomes more shallow. You don't need to think about it or label it. When the in-breath is short, you know, it's short. And when the out is short, you know it's short. And when thoughts come, just let them self-evaporate, self-release. You don't need to do anything about them. Just rest in your awareness, this ongoing flow of awareness, the flow of knowing. The rhythm of the breath, long or short, with each in-breath and out-breath. And don't be distracted by thoughts. Just let them flow on through and release themselves. With your eyes gently open in this very softly lit room here in Aralun. Let your awareness rest with no object, with no effort. And for the very short time remaining in this session, Just rest without doing anything, in the clarity of your own awareness, naturally still. In the Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra, for which you had the transmission, many of you, last Sunday, in that first phase of taking the impure mind as the path, Padmasambhava, by way of Juchim Ling, gives a, really a, a radiantly clear, Account. It's very concise. It's almost encrypted. It's so concise, but then Dudjom Lingba gives his own commentary, and then it just and then there was light, and uh, explaining in such wonderful clarity, detail, how this practice of settling the mind in its natural state unfolds, and what to do with upheavals, and how to deal with those, and how do you try to learn how to not reify whatever's coming up in terms of outer, inner, and secret. It's, it's truly a brilliant. A presentation of the root text and the commentary, and then when he's finished with all of that, he says, eh, "I I'll just paraphrase and said, oh, uh, if you're still having, you know, a lot of agitation come up, then practice mindfulness of breathing." Comes back there, sweet, it's really sweet. So what I'd like to do now is to return to this chapter. Complete it quite quickly. of Practice. You see, there are many ways of saying, well, this is a, like a 20-page chapter with the commentary of Yatra There are many ways of saying, mm, stop, doing anyth- stop doing anything. I mean, we well, could just say that and that would be enough, but usually that's not enough. And so he's given us a whole bouquet of different, different ways of phrasing it. And sometimes a bit more young, of really observe your mind, observe your awareness, come in, withdraw into the nature of awareness. That's very useful. That's a definitely a genuine Mahamudra approach, a Dzogchen approach, there's no question. We you are doing something, you're really observing the mind, that's doing something. Uh, but then when it turns into the not observing the mind is observing the mind that is not there, then it does turn into not doing. And the other one, of course, the not doing. So we're seeing kind of this play between the two, uh, back and forth but you'll see it's not really there's no progression here really I mean there was one reference to phases but um, overall the practice is very simple there's not a whole lot of ways of not doing anything at all and so yeah so as I recall I think we're on page 144 so let's simply continue but I don't think there are going to be any more any surprises in this last couple of pages so according to the tradition of the great perfection Aro oral lineage by Yakte Pinjin. In the state of luminous empty awareness, free of grasping, relax gently. Be completely loose and totally present. Do not inhibit appearances, do not reject them with antidotes. Do not alter them with the intellect and do not fabricate or modify them. Whatever appears and however it appears, turn inwards upon that alone. And without modifying, negating, or affirm, affirming anything, be at ease in your own nature, settled in luminosity without grasping. That is called the great total presence of Aro. Amazing. And yet it is so. Again, and maybe you could help me with this. What, uh, many of my teachers are from Kam. And unless I uh, it's an old memory, but unless I'm mistaken, uh, they would say, Aro, Deshita, Aro. Uh, the, uh, my, uh, many of the Gishengon, Taigi, Yeshadapt, and a lot of my teachers are from come. And I know that uh, it's an old memory because I haven't heard them for a long time now. But I know in their own dialect when they say, hey, come over here. You know, they're cowboys. Hey, Darren, come over here. Aro, you know, Except they say, Aro. Deshauta! <laughs> so, Aro! It's almost like pe. It's first Aro and then it's pet. Aro! Hey! That's what it is. This is an Aro lineage. I think so. Okay. Really straight. I love a compass. There's something also fine, I mean, you know, English high society, there's something very charming about it, very elegant about it. There's no question. And, you know, I've known, oh, I've known a number of Plaza aristocrats. And there's something very elegant about that. I mean, it's very sweet, very cultured. Very cultured. I like to visit there. But then I like to go home to cowboy, cowboy country. Aro, deshota. Hola, That's <a> aro. <laughs> Dong Kachapasaraha says Hey, son, listen. <laughs> hey, you. Deshota. <laughs> Observe your own mind unstructured consciousness of the present is what the genas of the three times have in mind this direct perception devoid of obscurations and free of all substantialist and nihilistic extremes is without rejection or acceptance hope or fear so do not modify the ultimate reality of your mind just as it appears as it appears the body and mind are unestablished they're not really there you can't find them any more than you could find your body when you just rested there in the space and the pulsings, these intangible, utterly immaterial pulsings in space that we call earth element. Earth, you'd think of a big, big clump of something like a rock or something, and yet when you go there, it's empty, it's unestablished. The body and mind are both unestablished, like a rainbow in the sky. They appear but are empty. The body is no more empty than, the mind is no more empty than the body is, right? Whoever realizes this dissolves, and again, the mind, when it takes configuration, when the mind becomes configured, it can be as solid as anything. The configurations of the mind, just mind, can be as con- as solid as anything. Long time ago, I had a dream that was maybe triggered by the movie regarding Henry with Harrison Ford. Anybody ever see that? He walks into a little little, uh, little drugstore, and a. Th- Thief comes in and shoots him in the head, bang! And then he has to deal with that. You know, he didn't die. So, in one of my dreams a long time ago, I was someplace and maybe I'd seen that movie, and then somebody just shot me in the head and I died with a dream bullet. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or somebody punches you or you fall. You know? Or somebody, good strong man, like, oh, like that guy over there, Glenn, big strong man, takes you. Hey, my name's, I, my name's Glenn. <laughs> Put her there. Put her there mate. What do you want to talk about? How's your meditation going? Put her there. <laughs> I'm sure, I haven't shaken, ha- shaken hand, but I'll bet she has got a really strong handshake. And that would be equally true in the dream. That's something really firm, big strong man, good strong, solid, aussie, shock, handshake. Yeah. And yet, it's the mind becoming solid. How's that possible? How does space become solid? how does luminosity and cognizance become as solid as maybe playing football, playing rugby in a dream and getting knocked flat on your back? You know, it's strange, this mind. And if you can do that in a dream, then why should we take this any more seriously here? So, let's keep on going. This direct perception Devoid of obscurations and free, okay, we that. the body and mind are unestablished like a rainbow in the sky. They appear, but they're empty. Whoever realizes this dissolves like space into space. And when that happens, what a sight it is. <laughs> Lovely. And then Gatun Chikizombo says, observe the nature of whatever appears and whatever occurs. If there is an observer, observe that too. If there is joy, observe the nature of the joy. If there is an observer, observe that too. If there is pain, observe the nature of pain. If there's an observer, observe that too. So I remember, I think I might have told before. I'll say it again. Though Gato commented when I was still perturbed by getting angry, irritated sometimes. He said, "Don't be. Don't worry about that. You get angry. Okay, big deal. Anger comes up. Then turn your attention in upon the anger. So it gets grist for the mill, you know." Get angry, don't linger on what you're angry about, That's that's pointless. But something comes up, you're irritated, you're upset, oh cool, observe it. Then you turn it into Dharma, you turn it into Dzogchen. So if you find nothing to observe by looking, leave that to inequality without grasping. If you do not even find yourself as the observer, leave that to inequality without grasping. So look, but don't overdo it. And when the looking gives rise to a non-seeing, then there's a time just to rest and linger there with the flow of awareness. Avalokiteshvara's collected essential instruction states, in the stage of completion, the posture is characterized by the seven qualities of varochana, the breath is left alone and without intentionality, intentionally, Bringing anything to mind, the mind is placed steadily in single-pointedness. This is the initial placement without distraction. Once you're accustomed to that, then whatever thoughts arise, recognize them and focus just on their nature. That is the intermediate placement without structure. And Whenever a dependent consciousness goes, Whenever dependent consciousness goes to all objects and subjects, leave it in equality and rest in that. That is the final letting go. In case of laxity, stay in a cool place and elevate your gaze. In case of excitation, stay in a warm place and lower your gaze. There's really perennial yogic advice right there. Really practical, really totally practical. Yeah, so two more. The glorious Tengwa says, Therefore, whatever happiness and sorrow, Mental afflictions, including the three poisons, and good and bad thoughts, arise. Whatever arises, do not follow after them, but turn inwards and steadily observe them. So don't go to the referent. Same very familiar theme now for maybe six weeks. Whatever comes up, don't go to the referent, don't get caught up, don't get carried away in a little samsaric spin, but observe the events themselves arising in the space of the mind. Turn inwards. By so doing, the essence of all states of consciousness will vividly appear only as empty, luminous, and pure of a self-nature, just as there is no difference in the fluidity of all water. Thus you will intuitively know that there is nothing to reject or affirm in anything, and that there is no need to do so, and you will spontaneously transcend the intellect. Whatever virtue you perform, such as generosity, that is imbued with this authentic vision, gains the name pure, gen, perfection of generosity, and so forth. And it becomes a true cause of supreme enlightenment and the unification of the two collections of merit and knowledge. So with this, what would otherwise be a tainted virtue, configured by dualistic grasping, contaminated by mental afflictions, delusion, and so on, the same act, giving somebody a glass of water, With this authentic vision, then it actually turns into pure, pure virtue. It takes you right to perfect enlightenment. This is meditation on the true meaning of all the yanas simultaneously, and this is the foremost of all unions of shamatha and vipassana. So, very weighty words. Dungjeng Kunga Namgya says, the critical point for samadhi is to place the mind at ease in its own nature, Nakedly, in a relaxed way, observe the nature of the mind at ease. Rely upon the continuous mindfulness of simple, non-distraction. Whatever thoughts arise, observe their nature without intentionally rejecting or accepting them, and without any kind of justification. And then Kamachamit finishes his chapter with, Bring forth the reliable shepherd, of mindfulness of simple non-distraction. That's kind of it. Mindfulness here is just not being distracted, and what's left over, when you're not being distracted, that's it. That's really simple. Don't be distracted, okay? And that's it. Without meditating on anything. Like right there, we want to add. We want to be clever. We want to do it right. We want to do I do it right? Did I do it right? And all of that is just junk piled into a pool of clear water. Don't be distracted. And that's it. Quite wonderful, because everything else is just given freely. So bring forth a reliable shepherd, it's a lovely metaphor, of mindfulness, of simple non-distraction, without meditating on anything, and without indulging in even the slightest trace of hopes for the meditative state to arise, or fears that it will not, or hopes for expansiveness and excellent experiential realizations, or fears of the occurrence of hindrances or errors. So, he spent twenty pages saying in a myriad of ways the same message. And that's his chapter on on practice, when you see that the next chapter is Mahamudri, you might think, wow, what comes next? You know, And the answer is, nothing, <laughs> really. And as I was, I haven't read it for a while, so I was just, I had to kind of like this real delight and say, oh, that's what he says in that chapter. Um, and it really struck me the strong parallel in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. You know the method's clear, very straightforward, simple. And then you you also know, if you study the map, there are nine stages, or we'll see there also, you can make it fewer stages, you can make four mindfulnesses. Instead of nine stages, you can have four mindfulnesses. That's sufficient. We're going to see another grid, another little framework (coughs) to describe the same unfolding process. But what's really important here in that practice, that one that I just want to focus on, taking the mind as a path or settling the mind in its natural state is, while it progresses, it evolves, it transforms, it catalyzes upheavals of all kinds, outer, inner, and secret, the method stays the same. From the, from the first time, the very first session, when you're a rank beginner and you think you're, you totally suck at it, terrible, the method you're practicing in the first session is the, one you're, the method that you practice when you're halfway through, and it's the method you practice when you're going to achieve shamatha in three minutes. It's the same method. And it's doing almost nothing, and doing that consistently. That's very important. So there's no advanced degree, or, or really smart people should do it this way. Or dull people should do it this way. No, it's, uh, that's, that's it. Ma, yang, zime. Don't be distracted. Don't grasp. And so similarly, when we're talking about non-meditation, when you're talking about the actual practice of Dzogchen meditation, meditation where you have access. You've, now, number one, identification is, is enormous. I mean, of course, that's crucial. That's what differentiates, to a large extent, the simple shamatha practice of settling the mind versus the, the bona fide texture practice of cutting through, or authentic mahamudra practice. Have you identified or not? If you haven't, then it's back to shamatha. If you have, oh, then it's mahamudra or Dzogchen, right? But the point here, very simply, because li- I'm eager to get to this next chapter, is the method doesn't change. But now it's not just from here to shamatha, it's from here until enlightenment. The method doesn't change, because the method is non-meditation. So if you started doing something, you'd be walking backwards. right? But you can't do more nothing, you can't do hyper nothing, or you can't do esoteric nothing. It's either nothing or it's it's more, and don't do more because that's less. (laughs) <laughs> right takes you backwards it's operating again out of a samsaric mind so it's simple I mean the words sound funny once in a while but you know what they mean right so we're finished if you'd like to follow this path of Mahmudra and you just you just want to follow that one current of distilled water that's it and that'll just take you all the way to becoming a Vidyadara if you're practicing texture that's it and you have to identify pristine awareness that's sure And the Vipassana helps you break down the reification that blocks that, that's sure. And you need the shamatha so when you slip into it, you don't just fall off or space out. So these preliminaries are important. But once you're there, then it's just that, you know, it's just that. So what on earth could he have to say that he's not said already? As we now go to Mahamudra, the grand finale of this retreat, Because the next chapter is Atiyoga, that's Thut Gilderet crossing over, we're not going to go there yet, we're not ready. Right. So what more could he possibly have to say in a Mahamudra chapter, when he's already pointed out identification, which opens the door to Mahamudra, and practice which keeps the door open, what more is there to say? Is the suspense, suspense building? (laughs) You getting eager? Then let's turn the page! Yeehaw! Okay, Mahamudra, Chapter 7, Homage to Avalokiteshvara. These are the profound, practical instructions of Avalokiteshvara, And here is the manner in which experiential realizations arise. It's nyam tok, nyam tok, So I think nowadays I probably would break it into two pieces. Because if it's really tokpa, realization, well, that's not just figuring out conceptually. That's, if, if you just understand something conceptually, that's not called tokpa, which is realization. That's called goa, which means understand. Okay? So once you've read through the, let's say, the, the Vipassana chapter, and it's intellectually challenging, but not overwhelming, right? Hard, but not incredibly hard. And once you've understood it, maybe you've had some question-and-answer time, you've discussed with Glenn or with me or what have you. At the end, have you, is anything mysterious there in the, in the Vipassana chapter? Was that, I mean, it's challenging practice, but in term, do you know how to do it? Do you know what it means? What's it's about? And in a week or two, you probably could say, yeah, I think, I mean, sure. My understanding can always be more refined, more subtle, more profound, but, yeah. If I gave you an exam, could you pass the exam? Mm, Yeah, probably, if you studied well, practicing. So that's goa, that's understanding. When you talk about tokpa, there's something in between, between goa, which is understanding, and tokpa, which is realization, there's something in between. And what would that be? What would that be, Suzanne? Practice, yeah, but in terms of what's coming up, What's coming up? You First of all, you, you listen to teachings, you get understanding. You go very deep in the practice and you gain realization. But there's something in between that happens to you. And what's that? If you don't know, it doesn't matter. Just tell me you don't know. But if you do know, then tell me. What's in between understanding and realization? Everybody should learn this. It's important. If you don't know it, good, then you'll learn it. You won't forget it. Doesn't know? You don't know? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, yeah. Remind me of your name, we spoke just yesterday, right there. Yeah. Simona, yeah, we just spoke a couple of days ago. Simona, what comes in between understanding and realization? Experience, experience yeah. Nyam, meditative experience, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So you may not have had some profound realization, but something shifts, a different type of experience comes in, yeah? That's very important. So it's not just, yeah, I can give the right answer, call on me, call on me, I know the right answer, that's good, that's understanding. It's not realization, that means you've really hit the nail into the wood, I mean you've nailed it, right, that's realization. But in between, a lot of nyam, or nyam is a good word, it's meditative experiences, and it could be bliss, it could be stillness, it could be luminosity, it could be a sense of spaciousness, it could be, and so forth and so that comes and they'll come in waves and they taper off in a wave and they taper off in another kind of a wave and another kind of wave and so I want to get into this chapter so I think nyam dok I wouldn't translate any longer as experiential realizations because if it's realization of course it's experiential you don't need to say that so it's nyam dok which I would say is meditative experiences and realization Tibetan is totally ambiguous there you couldn't know it just by looking at the words so meditative experiences and realization So he's going to tell the manner in which these arise. So that would be interesting. If you engage in the preliminary and main practices, now the preliminary practices, the ones that we didn't even cover because Gautama Chai said, you already understand that, we don't need to do it. That is, it needs to be done, but I'm not going to teach it. taught it many times. I'd already had a lot of training in it for 20 years. So, there's volume one here. We have volume two and three. Volume one is all about preliminary practices. Vajrasattva, mandala offering, guru yoga and so forth in great detail. Okay. So, what he's doing is summing up here. He's summing up. He's backtracking and taking this panoramic view. So, he's going back to a section of the text we never covered, but we did do the three outer preliminaries, the three uncommon preliminaries. So, we did cover it, in essence. We didn't skip it. Everybody knows that, all of you here anyway. So, if you engage in the preliminary and main practices, main spiritual practices, with great perseverance, signs of those two phases of practice will occur. Now, this is really juicy. If you engage in the preliminary practice, you're doing them authentically, with real focus and faith and aspiration, then stuff happens. It's not just, oh, thank goodness I finished that one. I just chalked up a hundred thousand. That's your sign. hundred thousand. That's your sign. Big deal. Maybe it's a big deal, maybe it's not, maybe it's just number. He's talking about signs which have nothing to do with numbers. So signs of that your preliminary practices have really borne fruit. They did what they were designed to do. Just like shamatha, it's designed to do something, to bring you to a certain quality of awareness, and then you know you've done it. It's not practicing shamatha for a hundred thousand hours, it's practicing until it gives rise to what it was designed to do, right? The preliminary practices are the same. So this is very interesting. You're going to, if you haven't read it before, oh, this is really something. So signs of those two phases, preliminary and main spiritual practices, will occur. One in whom those signs appear swiftly and simultaneously, you practice and boom, you get the result, they are called simultaneous individuals. Okay, you've heard about those, yeah, who bear karmic dividends, or this is the karmic overflow, the karmic momentum, you've heard that before, Coming like, they're coming in like Mingo Dorje, they're coming in like Dujum Lingba, and so forth, you know, they're charged. They just, it's like having a bit of dust on the palm of your hand and you go, and that's gone. You, know, you, do a few, you, know, you do a little bit boom, and that's right there, okay. In other words, you came in with it, and it's just blowing off a little bit of dust. So, such people are rare. Those in whom the indeterminate, indeterminate means it's not just one sign or two, it's there's some variation there, they're not entirely, they're not really predictable, so unpredictable. Those in whom this, the indeterminate signs appear, to a high degree, are middling individuals of the leap over class. This is the direct crossing over class, okay? In other words, they may be able to go there quite quickly. Just scoot right through, Shama Vipassana, or through Mahamudra and go right to the leap-over class, the culminating phase of Dzogchen. So if they meditate, it will be very effective, but there is the danger of their sliding back to an ordinary state due to succumbing to pitfalls. So you can leap, but if you're not really ready for that leap, you may leap and then just find yourself sliding right back down again. So kind of gives kind of a little nudge, be conservative, err on the side of maybe I'm duller than I thought. Maybe should develop some foundation. Okay. So, in gradual, so we have the simultaneous, the middling, and then in gradually guided individuals, Dzogchen Lingma calls them people of dull faculties. It is hard for the signs to come, but they do gradually appear as a result of continual, sustained meditation. So we all have the ability. Some like learning how to play piano, or tennis, or mathematics, or chess. Some people are more gifted, some others, but it, it's one of those things that uh, you do have the capacity for it. And just if you persevere, then it will come. Because we all have the same capacity. Just by the way, the uh, Geltrude commentary is very, very rich, so I encourage you to read that at your leisure. Reflect upon it, absorb it. It's really very illuminating. But back to Kama Chamet for the transmission here. So, moreover, there is no certainty as to when the signs of meditating on the preliminaries will occur. So he's going way back to the preliminary practices. The guru yoga, the prostrations, the the mandala offering, vajrasattva. This is interesting. This is quite interesting. um, I don't know how common it is to see it so clearly articulated. He's about to tell us, what are the signs? If you're doing preliminary practice, what are the signs it's actually working? And not just, I'm 50,000 through, or 100,000, or... I'm bored or whatever. So they may come gradually or as side effects. So you may see them just kind of gradually coming up, come up, or they may come more sporadically here and there. So recognize whether or not the signs have appeared. Well, you have to know what they are in order to recognize them. In the event of good signs, do not be excessively elated. Very, very easy. And the non appearance of signs is an indication of thick obscurations. So develop enthusiasm rather than discouragement, frustration, I'm a loser, I'll never get anywhere, counter you, fight right back, bring enthusiasm. If bad signs occur, so you have good signs, no signs, bad signs. If bad signs occur, recognize these as indications of the purification of obscurations and do not speculate about them. So that's actually, one could say, good signs, excellent, bad signs, very good, no signs. Okay, keep practicing. It's actually true. So, we're gonna have the signs of, when you're doing the preliminary practices and they are bringing about the transformation for which they were designed, right? That's good to know. First, these are the signs of the preliminary practices, and good Samba says, okay, here's some of the common preliminaries, right? If you meditate on death and impermanence, and it works, you're not just being morbid or going through a routine or thinking dark thoughts, or thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But you're really doing the proper meditation, which is balanced, it's deep, it's contextualized. It's not just thinking about death. Anybody can do that. It's nothing particularly Dharma about that. I'm going to die. Okay, so what? But when in the context of the common preliminaries, and you're meditating on your own mortality, the three aspects, the uncertainty of time of death, the certainty that you will die, and then asking that or addressing that third all-important issue. In the face of death, what is valuable now? That's the clincher, that's the climax. That we can die anytime, that really catches the attention. And if you think you're not, you have false security. Because really anybody, from the time of conception until you're a hundred or whatever, death really can come at any time that really already starts to unravel the tentacles of attachment. But then also that great big, like a door slamming or like a guillotine coming down, that there's no escape, there's just no escape. It's like being in the middle of a great river with a tremendously fast current, and you can hear just downstream this tremendous roar, tremendous roar. And you, no matter what you do, you swim upstream, you swim to the left or the right, it doesn't matter. You're going over the falls. And maybe you can slow it down. Maybe you can find a stick to hold on to for a while. But you're going over the falls. And so factor that in. Yeah, that's deep. That's, uh, that, that's a revolution. But then the real clincher there is when you're going over the falls, is there anything valuable now, or is now all value terminated? Uh, that is the question. And for the materialists, all value is terminated. For you, I mean, you have loved ones and so forth, hope you leave them a nice inheritance, but for you, as they say, this is the end. This is the end, my friend. Finito. It is the end of this life. Is it, is it the end of meaning? Is it the end of value? is there anything that still matters?" And there is actually one, uh, only one answer. And it's universal. I don't care what your background is, your religion, no religion. It's called Dharma. That's the only thing that matters. There's a value. It's not the only thing that carries on. What carries on is karma. But the one thing of value, the one thing from that perspective, when you're just about to go over the falls and you're looking over where you came from, the one thing that you look back on and say, that's still a value that's still a value, is your dharma practice. And everything else evaporates into nothing, not even a memory. Whatever you've accomplished, your joys, your sorrows, your vacations, your children, your family, not even a memory. That's really going over the falls. So many, many things have value while we're alive. But when you're going over the falls, only one thing. I think that's just true. If it's true, it's not because I say it's true. It's because it was true before I said anything. So the cord that connects you to your homeland will be cut. If this works, oh, I can't bear to be away from home. Oh, I miss my homeland. Oh, I miss my family. Oh, I I. Mean, where's my house? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cut. <laughs> Benito. You're going over the falls. There's gonna be no homeland in the falls. You're never coming back to your homeland. You won't even know what your homeland was. That's how terminated you are. The glue of your relatives will crumble. You won't even remember who they are. All that attachment, my family, my family, my son, my child, my wife, my brother, my parents, my, my, my. And then you go over the falls, you can't even remember who they were. You could see in the next lifetime and not even recognize, just one more strange and the attachment to food and wealth will be severed. Yeah, that's kind of clear. So that's it. So if that happens, if you're meditating and you're wondering, is this practice worki- working or not? See whether the signs have come up. If they're not, it's not working. Whether you recite something a hundred thousand times or not, it's not working. Meditate on this once and you find already that these three things have happened, then the signs have come up. That's really good. So that's something you can really evaluate. Yeah? Nothing mysterious about that. Nothing mystical, like, oh, in the future life something is going to happen. No, in this lifetime. How about meditate, if you meditate on the difficulty of obtaining a human life of leisure and endowment, what are the signs that that practice has worked? It's produced that revolution, that turning about, for which that meditation was designed, in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and you find the roots are very clearly articulated in the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon. What's it like? You will not engage in pointless activities you really start simplifying, streamlining your life. That doesn't mean you become a monk or become a recluse necessarily, but it does mean wherever you are, you just cut out all the crap, all the noise, all the junk, lean. And that means you may still have children and a job, and you may be performing activities in the society and so forth, but it's all dharma. Frankly, from my perspective, it's really simple. If it's not dharma, it's junk. But Dharma can be, at the end of a long day, watching some very interesting and informative uh, and meaningful television program. It can. Or listening to some music. That's not junk. Mozart's not junk. Traffic or Crosby, Silden, that's not junk. Can be. Can be. It's all motivation. It's all motivation. Metallica, I'm not quite sure. (laughs) But that's just because I'm an old geezer, you know, I just, I'm too old for that, I think. So I leave it open. The younger people, maybe that's also. could be. not for me to say. It was just too loud <laughs> <laughs> My old ears. So you'll not engage in pointless activities. You will apply yourself enthusiastically day and night to Dharma activities, not because you have to, because it's the, it's the only thing to do. And you will avoid and you will avoid evil companions. This is not a sectarian thing or we're we're holy and you're not. It's not that. It's just that, as I was told by my dissertation advisor at Stanford, pretty wise man actually, not not religious at all, but he said, Alan, be careful of who you associate with because you will become like them. And I left academia not too long after that. <laughs> <laughs> not that they're bad people, they're not, any more than plumbers or architects or anybody else. It's a job. It was just mm, that was not a place for me to flourish with my priorities, because my priorities are actually very different than most people in academia. Yeah, so that's fine. But we do tend to be, until we're very very deep in our dharma, we do tend to be like chameleons. We do tend to go along with people around us, especially if there's a group of them, and to not go along with them. If they're all drinking, if they're all really partying, if they're all really killing time in a lot of amusing ways, they say, come on, come on, come on, Don't no, 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 come on, come on, come on. It's hard to say no. You don't want to be left out. You don't want to be a loner. You don't want to be rejected. So better find Dharma friends. And when they say, come on, come on, come on, then it's a good place to come. So there it is. That's it. Very clear. If you meditate, we're just making the four thoughts that turn the mind into three. So the third one covers karma as well. And we have this in the three outer pre- outer preliminaries, or three common preliminaries. Here it is. If you meditate on the faults of samsara, what are the signs? You will see sensual attractions as a cause of misfortune. The, the grasping, the clinging, the hope, the fear, it just always turns out badly. It's a matter of time, not if. It's when, not if. There's one point that you really do become, not that you enjoy the beauties of nature and so on any less, but just that attachment that craving that clinging that sense my happiness lies there well, that dissipates it's it's subdued and you'll entrust yourself to the three jewels and your obsession with mundane concerns will cease so those are pretty big revolutions so those are signs very helpful thus by cultivating the four emeri- four preliminaries and included the nature of samsara and karma in the fourth one a third one each of the outer inner and secret signs will appear first so we have more here first these are the blessings these are the signs of receiving blessings due to making supplications okay this is your guru yoga this is offering prayers of supplication calling for blessings and so forth what are they the outer signs are that due to boundless adoration and reverence this is specifically for guru yoga as was Calling for supplication, calling for blessings—that merging of body, speech, and mind—you're familiar with it. So the outer signs are that, due to boundless adoration and reverence, even when your your guru is present, out of adoration you wish to touch his or her body. And Gatanamochi comments on this very clearly. This is not sexual. It's not physical. It's not attachment. It's—it's it's just something very sweet, you know. They just want to be near the person, and touching body kind of like just touching like that. It has no other connotation to it. It's just like, as we say in English, let's keep in touch. You know, if you're really fond of somebody, let's keep in touch, at least by email. But let's not get out of touch. You know. Or sometimes, I mean, my my relation with my wife is pretty much visual, auto-visual these days. But seeing her, you know, it's a very happy relationship, and it's just always nice to be in touch, even if we're not talking about anything really important. But when there's a relationship of a lot of affection, and being in touch something you really want. And sometimes it's physical, physical. it's just nice, stuff, like that. It's something sweet, it's innocence, it's pure, there's no yucky stuff here at all. I guarantee that, not when it's authentic. And of course we can screw up anything. Sometimes teachers screw up towards the parent, uh, the students, we know all kinds of stories of that, always screwing up Dharma. And sometimes the, te- and the students do it to the teacher, and they just screwing up Dharma as well. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not, nothing of that. So this should be clear and because your mind has been captivated just you know so drawn so happy so almost intoxicated with dharma captivated by the spiritual mentor you think of nothing else and again this can so easily be attachment but you must by now know you have to know by now if it's it's a di- idolatry if it's going that way it's idolatry then it's just like being infatuated with a a man or a woman or or money or a car it cannot possibly be the meaning here so Anybody reading this out of context, oh, this is just one more infatuation. But if it is, then you've missed the whole point. Okay? And of course, who's that spiritual mentor? You have pristine awareness. You always want to stay in touch. That's what it's really talking about. And whatever you see of the spiritual mentor, the guru, the lama, that is a very pure display. If you're maintaining pure vision, that's a pure display of the purity of your own awareness. And that's the source of the wisdom. Whatever the guru may be saying, that really strikes a chord, that really comes in and it's really wisdom, it sounds like it's coming from outside. It's not, it's coming from inside. Every noise I'm making right now is in the space of your mind, right? So where's it coming from? What's illuminating this voice here? Your awareness. And if there's understanding being imparted, where's the understanding coming from? Do you think I'm getting into your bubble? Do you think somebody outside is poking in, sticking a finger into your bubble? Do you think I'm jumping out of my manda- mandala into your mandala? Can't do it, don't know how to do it, wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> Yours is like a telephone booth, that's already full, you know, occupied. There's not room to, for, in one telephone booth when they used to have those, you remember? There's only really one room for person for one person. So your, your telephone booth is full. Whatever wisdom you're getting, it's coming from inside. It's just catalyst from outside. If I really piss you off, I didn't do it. <laughs> you pissed yourself off. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> so and, pr- and then prayers of supplication arise unceasingly day and night. It's just your, the whole flow of your awareness, your desires, your aspirations. It's all flowing to Dharma. Very simple. Very beautiful, that. So if you understand it, you see it's squeaky clean. It's pure, like pristine snow. Nothing sticky, nothing yucky about it at all. That's when the practice, the relationship with the Guru is really sound and only of benefit. There's no downside to it at all. When attachment comes in, oh, of course, attachment for anything. Chocolate, a guru, anything. There's gonna be a downside. Those are the outer signs. This is still on Guru Yoga. He, these are the inner signs. Your realizations are enhanced simply by recalling your spiritual matter. So in other words, you, it's not just data, data input, data flow, transfer. You're really getting blessings. You get blessing by being in the presence of the guru, hearing the voice of the guru, by thinking of the guru, in this purified, pure vision, unreified, and that just enhances realization. It nurtures realization. There's one. Outer appearances present themselves as if they were apparitions. So the reification melts away, and inner consciousness appears as un... Uh, that should be... me. Uh, it is as appears as unmediated, clear and empty, and the flow of intervening thoughts is cut. So in Vajrayana, and Dzogchen Mahamudra, they really emphasize this, how powerfully transformative it can be to have a profoundly meaningful and pure relationship with a spiritual mentor. The Buddha for you. So those are the inner signs. So the outer are the ones that, you know, more Publicly manifest the inner ones, more private, psychological, and then the, the secret, the innermost signs, and these are: you dream of meeting your guru, being granted empowerment, you get empowerment in your dreams, being taught dharma, and emitting and retracting or withdrawing rays of light. So you start practicing stage regeneration in your dreams. That's quite nice. I've done it. It's quite nice. Oh yeah. About empowerment, there was a very powerful phrase or passage in the Vajra Essence, where he's uh, very deeply into the text, maybe three fourths the way through the text, and he's come now really to his very concise, extremely clear presentation of tek-chut, cutting through to pristine awareness. And he says, when you cut through to pristine awareness, you're dwelling there. Then your own pristine awareness itself, spontaneously, effortlessly, and with no ritual or form grants you the four empowerments. So with no ritual, no placing on the head, no substances, no water, no nothing, you actually receive all the four empowerments. Uh, the vas, the secret empowerment, or the, sh- the, wi- the wisdom, primordial consciousness empowerment, the secret empowerment, and finally the word empowerment, and you get them all spontaneously. And your guru is your own pristine awareness, and your guru is, prov- is granting you all four empowerments. That's the real four empowerments. That's powerful. Oh, yeah. So those are the secret signs. That's for Guru Yoga. So, again, we have 100,000 literacies about Guru Yoga, and that can be very useful. It may be very, very meaningful. But at the end, you might want to check when you finish your 100,000, whew, thank goodness that's finished. Or, oh, that was very nice to do, and that was good. You might want to check see whether the signs have come up. If they haven't, you might want to start doing another 100,000, or you might want to stop counting. Just do the practice until the signs come. Because this, just like when you achieve shamatha, you remember what it's like, the the signs? The pressure on the head and this and this and those, those are the signs of having achieved shamatha. These are the signs that you've really well nurtured a very meaningful and pure relationship with the Guru. Outer, inner, and secret. This is priceless. It actually lets you know how your practice is doing. It gives you some benchmarks. And then we have the hundred-syllable mantra, the Vajrasattva mantra. I didn't mention but when I, I did mention earlier that the first meditation instruction I had that was one on one by a master was Geshuraptan. And I mentioned earlier he taught me equanimity, the fourth immeasurable. He said, Here, I taught I mentioned that before. He also said in the same session, Vadrasattva. And he said you can practice it without empowerment. Just start. Go for it. Oh, that was an interesting combination. Shravakayana. Shravakayana, equanimity, baseline? Vajrayana, Vajrayana, Vajrasattva practice, right from the very beginning. I liked it, actually, and I was drawn to it. So these are the signs of having purified evils, or vices, sins, whatever you like, negative karma, due to reciting the hundred-syllable mantra. Your body becomes light. You need a little sleep. You feel well, and heartfelt gladness arises. That really is worth bearing in mind. That shows the practice is working. You're filling your body with light. You're purifying, you're dredging, you're cleansing. You're ending with total non revocation of the body. Luminous, pure, radiant, filled with light. And then these are the symptoms. It's when it's really working. And the dream signs are, what kind of dreams come up? Auspicious dreams such as bathing, appearing naked, unadorned from all the obscurations of your mind pus and blood oozing from the body not pleasant but a clear sign of purification and similarly having diarrhea vomiting and uh, di- diarrhea and vomiting same disgusting but that's it the yucky stuff is coming out symbolically you're seeing there in the dreams, good sign unpleasant good sign and then wearing white clothing obviously a symbol of purification so then Gautama's commentary we continue with kama so these so that was for Vajrasattva, really clear, okay, body and then dream signs. okay? And then gladness, heartfelt gladness, clearly mind, you feel well, that's in body and mind. So that's Vajrasattva. And then we have the mandala. So hopefully I've, I've persuaded you, at least tentatively, to invite Mount Meru and the four continents back into your virtual reality, since everything is virtual. And these are the signs of having completed the accumulation of merit by offering the mandala. So, this could happen if you've m- offered the mandat at 10,000 times, or 389 times, or maybe 300,000 times. But in real authentic practice, you do it until the signs come. Lerap Lingba, in his Lerap Lingba, this Dzogchen teacher for the 13th Dalai Lama, in his text, the Chetsun is a commentary to the heart essence of Chetsun Singyuangshu, who achieved great transference rainbow body a long time ago. He teaches, as I mentioned, the, f- the seven common preliminaries culminating in, settling the mind, its natural state. Then he goes to the uncommon preliminaries, and that's vadra sattva, and mandala and so forth. He makes no reference to any numbers at all. He just says, do them until the signs come. Right? That's it. Pretty simple. I mean, it, it's just, it should be, it should be, in my mind, because, you know, I'm, I have a strong aversion to ritual and even for meaningful ritual, I like to keep it, kind of, not too much. Um, that you practice shamatha if you're really intent on reaching the path you practice shamatha until the signs come you've achieved shamatha you don't think well I've done ten thousand hours that should be enough Or I've done for four years or I spent five years in retreat or you do it until you're finished until the signs come you've achieved shamatha and he's saying it's the same thing here for the three thoughts the four thoughts that turn the mind do it until it's worked and likewise Guru Yoga, and likewise Vajrasattva, and likewise offering mandala. It's so easy to think, oh, mandala, you to do that, and then you stop. But you say, no, actually, there's more to it than that. Let's read. What's it like to actually have done it, done that practice, and realizing the signs for which that practice was designed? You feel well. You have a sense of delight. You're not hungry even when you do not eat, and your intelligence increases. That sounds good. <laughs> mandala offering, have I now aroused your interest in mandala offering? <laughs> All 37 heaps, you know? And it's, and you know, if you start getting a little bit good at visualization, it's beautiful. Make it as beautiful as you possibly can. You know, have fun with it. And if you're throwing a birthday party, you know, or your parents and you're, you know, getting the tree and a bunch of pile of presents for your kids, my wife and I do for our grandson, you want it to be pretty. Fun, so that your you know, your grandson comes in, oh, like that, ah, like that, you know, or Jamie has helped us making really beautiful silk here. It's really pretty, and oh my goodness, the altar went for the empowerment is people but listening my podcast. We should show some some photos people who took the empowerment. Such a beautiful altar. I was just like, oh, I just wanted to look and look, see my family all in one place, like my family album. Oh, yeah, this all in another. Oh, get rid of what you high. <laughs> Uh, Samadavedra, Ooh! <laughs> oh, be good, <laughs> you know. So, mandalafring. Let's get back to this one—the one that easily is so easy to kick around. A mandalafring throwing rocks at a dish, <laughs> you know, and uh, the person who said that—I just want to say—I totally sympathize. I never mentioned any kind of sarcasm when I said that, because we've been there. This person just put into words a lot what a lot of people have experienced. I'm doing this again. You've already fallen asleep in your mouth, is just going ba blah, wow. You know, I'm not talking about other people. You know. So you feel well. So the dream signs are the rising of the sun and moon, ascending to a height, like to a mountaintop, walking in a field of flowers, being given food by a fine woman, gazing into a mirror, and so on, so forth. Okay, so these are the signs of disengaging from obsessions as a result of meditating on impermanence. We're going back there again. So you see, this is all called Mahamudra. He's talking about what are the signs that your Mahamudra practice actually works. They say so emphatically, Gatranaphaji, he just would never stop saying this. Preliminaries, preliminaries, preliminaries. The four thoughts, the Guru Yoga, the preliminaries, preliminaries, you know, just relentless. Come back there. And the Four Noble Truths and the Four Immeasurables and so forth, coming back there. Get the signs there and you can get the signs later. Run over those because, eh, whatever, and get onto the real stuff and then, you know, lots of luck. Mm-hmm. So, meditating on impermanence, you cease craving for sensual attractions. The flow of concerns about this life alone is cut. You live with a gentle sense of mental well-being. The turbulence of the mind becomes vividly distinct, so you kind of turned up the clarity of your attention and you see how really turbulent screwed up rambunctious your own mind is that's the one of the first signs of success of shamatha practice the fee- you have the feeling that there's no point in anything anything mundane and you set your sights closer and closer to the present stop worrying about the future your future may be in the bardo starting tomorrow you know so be having these long term hedonic plans you start kind of cutting that some slack. Appearances lose their luster. This sounds like it could be, really, if you took this out of the context, this looks like mm, clinical depression. Bipolar. Your mind is really, really turbulent, but there's no point in anything. You stop thinking about the future because it's totally hopeless. And all appearances lose their luster. Everything becomes drab and gray. Uh, it could be by context. And you know, frankly, if there's no Dharma, that's pretty much it is. People who really have deep insight, like the satra type of insight, and it's not just great you know, French philosophers, but people who just start seeing, you know, what's the point? Especially if they've been so indoctrinated. Just one comment about the Darwinian evolution, such a brilliant theory, and what it's brilliant at as, as, is explaining our animal nature. It's really good at that. We're primates, we have primate genitals, we m- women give birth to live babies, you know, like whales and like chimpanzees and squirrels, you know, we are, we're mammals and then we're primates and we survive and we get angry, and we got teeth, they can rip flesh, but can also chew vegetables you know, and so insofar as we are animals, we're primates, we're within the animal realm, enormous explanatory power, really I say that just, just flat out, has enormous explanatory power. We fight like chimpanzees, we have better weapons than just a club or our fists, whatever, our teeth. And so that's part of us. And if we look in the broader spectrum, sometimes we act like pretas, right? And sometimes we act like hell beings, and sometimes we act like animals. Insofar as we act like animals, we look like animals, then Darwinian evolutionary theory is brilliant. With explanatory power. As soon as we start really dwelling in, cultivating, enriching that which is distinctively human about us, our art, our music, our philosophy, our spirituality, our urge for transcendence, our experience of genuine happiness, our experience of unconditional love and compassion, our experience of pristine awareness, our experience of extrasensory perception, paranormal abilities, Evolution now has no explanatory power at all, which is okay, but the tragedy is to think, oh, that's, that's the whole story, and there are very reputable people, I mean, people in major positions of influence, say, that's all, the, that Darwinian story, you know, Darwin, genetics, brain chemistry, that's it, that's, that's it, that's the whole story, there's nothing more. Oh, that's savage, that's, that's savage, it's so utterly tragic, unspeakably tragic to tell children, that's it. That's all there is to you. And you strangle them to death for any urge that does not fit within that tiny, tiny box. That's where my passion comes from. It's so savage, but not by savage people, but not by mean people, but by deluded people. But it's still savage. Hmm. So, appearances lose their luster, your consciousness is not attached to objects, and it becomes contented. So rather than depressed, because you have dharma, you're not just grief-stricken, gray, drab, asidia, and so forth. You're contented. In addition, obscurations become more subtle. Great zeal, oh, there comes something. Zeal arises, enthusiasm, joy, delight in your practice. This comes. Because you have so few distractions now, and a variety of troubles occur in terms of your, of your body, external events and your mind. Sure, it stirs up stuff. Those are portents, those upheavals, you've heard about them for so many times now, those are portents that, or pre-signs, indications something's coming, that the meditative state will arise. You're going to start really making some real progress in shamatha, for example, so do not regard them as prom- problems. These portents, these upheavals, the body, the mind, surrounding environment, and so forth, these upheavals that seem to be catalyzed by your practice, do not lose heart. This is part of the practice. Practitioners of tech or cutting, th- no, this is chut. this is chut. This is an old translation, twenty years old. Chut practice. So you can check it up on, on the internet. Chut practice. Oh, by Machi Lapkidram and so forth. Padambasangye. They say this, these upheavals, this is an indication of experience. Meditative experience is coming. Shiche, another meditative tradition. They, those practitioners say it is an indication of virtue. Atiyoga or Zokten practitioners say this is a sign of receiving blessings. And Mahamudra practitioners say this is a sign of the heat of experience. You're starting to burn. In short, this is a sign that evil imprints are being purified and there's bound to be some smoke and some heat. So for individuals of superior faculties, the introduction to the nature of the mind may be enough. You hear it, you get it, right? For middling, individu- for middling individuals, so we've heard this, it's the same message from Padmasambhava, right? Some people don't need to practice shamatha vipassana. They get the pointing out instructions, bam! They go right to it. They develop their shamatha in rikpa, just resting in rikpa, and all the qualities of shamatha come right out of that, the stillness, the luminosity, the bliss, it's coming not out of your substrate, it's coming right out of rikpa, super shamatha, and because you're viewing reality from, shama, from the perspective of rikpa, you see everything is empty, so you don't need to have to figure that out, it's coming spontaneously. So that's very nice. But, if you're not a person of superior faculty, what to do? For middling individuals, shamatha will arise, So when you do the practice, do the practice that preceded, shamatha will arise. And even inferior people, people of dull faculties, will get a glimpse of stillness. They'll know what it's like, that unflickering candle flame. Okay, so they're getting some traction, they're getting some movement here. Then these are the characteristics of having cultivated shamatha with and without signs. So isn't this interesting? We thought there's going to be, whoa, some super mahamudra beyond any of the identification and practice. And he's coming back to shamatha right? You've scaled the heights up to the lofty, open spaciousness of no optic, no meditation. But you may find it a little bit difficult to sustain, right? They say, well, why don't we come back and check the foundations? And we're gonna see he lingers here a bit. Quite a surprise, isn't it? Good surprise, happy surprise. So that's quiescence. That's shamatha. Moreover, if you remain in a state of vividness, this is flawless shamatha. If you become blacked out, as in deep sleep, devoid of mindfulness, you remember that one, that's the third mindfulness, right? Single-pointed, manifest mindfulness, and then absence of mindfulness. If you get stuck there, just in a phase of not knowing, where your course mind is shut down and nothing else has happened, you've just turned off, turned off the lights, then this is a parody of cessation. It's a parody, a false facsimile of nirodha-samapati, that absorption in cessation, you know, way, way up there. I think I mentioned that briefly and a kind of meditation in which marmots are experts. (laughs) These are hibernating marmots, not happy marmots sitting on a rock. No, ones that you can't wake them up with a sharp stick. Hibernating marmots. On the other hand, if the mind does not become blacked out, when there are no memories or mindfulness in the mind, that is mindfulness has shut down, that's memories, and there are no thoughts in the mind, and a person is left with a sense of being unable to move his body. That is shamatha. It is inappropriate to take that person by the hands and make him arise. Don't mess with them. If a person is dwelling in that meditative, don't mess with them, don't bump them, don't do anything to them, let them alone. If you were to take that person by the hands and you know, wake up, wake up, what's wrong? Are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> Bad idea. If that were done, that person would either die or be reborn as an animal or run the danger of losing consciousness and becoming demented. Okay, that was quiescence, but that wasn't the real deal. Because shamatha is not a bad thing, it doesn't give rise to birth as an animal. This is that shamatha without the clarity. You've gone into non-mindfulness, absence of mindfulness. Not a good place to get stuck. Hang out there for a minute or two, and then in virtue of awareness, and you know, then finish. But if you just stop there, well, then you're you're dwelling in not knowing. Right? So, not so good. Or dwelling in kind of a, you're not finished. So, what to do if you feel a person is maybe, maybe stuck, maybe they got kind of slowed down in the mud, and they're just in a state where their senses are withdrawn, but you don't have that clarity, that vividness, that cognizance. That's the crucial point. It's not, the problem is not that your senses are withdrawn, from appearances. And we'll see, he says that. Ranjan Dorje says that. I think it's Ranjan Dorje. This text, oh, it comes a little bit later, Karasa, Ngirongyatso, Ngirongyatso, one of the great classic texts in the Ka- Kamakagyu tradition. So the problem is not that you're withdrawn from all appearances, the problem is you've lost the clarity, the luminosity, and the cognizance, which is what I've been saying so many times. So if you, if you feel that maybe somebody has kind of got stuck, then what you should do is sound chimes by his ear, something gentler. Burn incense by his nose and sprinkle water in his face, and this will arouse him as if he were waking from sleep. Again, the assertion that remaining with no thoughts coursing in the mind and with no mindfulness, the assertion that 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 is mindfulness, this is the view of the Chinese Hoshang and of non-Buddhists. You've missed it. It's not Mahamudra, it's not not Shamat, it's not Vipassana. It's blanking out, and that's not this path. So Gethin has a very interesting commentary there in the in the smaller font. Really, I would strongly encourage don't miss do, don't miss his commentary. It's really really good. Okay, that should keep it busy for twenty four hours, at least until tomorrow morning. So good night, everyone in Podcast Land. Talk to you soon.